want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're in a little bit of a transition phase having finished 2 Peter. And uh, Easter is coming upon us shortly and we'll spend some time uh, looking at that in the next few weeks. But this morning I want us to look at ministry in perilous times. This poor fella is acknowledging perilous times, <laughs> hanging on to the hands of the clock the best he can, and I think that's uh, a little bit indicative of where the church is today, trying to hang on and trying to be obedient and follow the work of the Lord, and how do we do that in these times? Well, story is told about Sherlock Holmes and his uh, faithful aide, Dr. Watson. Well, they took a little time out in uh, their busy schedule and went on a camping trip. And after a good meal and some lively discussion, they laid down for a night of sleep. And uh, it was just a few hours later, Sherlock awakes. And he sensed a problem. He nudged his faithful friend and said, Watson, what do you see? Watson replied, he said, I see millions and millions of stars. Sherlock says, well, what does that tell you? Watson pondered for a moment. He says, well, sir, it tells me that there are millions and millions of galaxies, potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time approximately is a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I suspect we'll have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Holmes? Sherlock Holmes let out a sigh of exasperation and spoke, Watson, you idiot. If you can see the stars, it tells you that while we slept, someone stole our tent. <laughs> you know, it's important to keep track of the tent. To keep track of the things that are closest to us, as well as maintaining a broad picture, the big picture of things going on around about us. And so what I want to analyze a little bit this morning is to bring us to an understanding of where we are and what time it is on God's clock. And in light of the time it is on God's clock, how do we take advantage of the ministry opportunities that this particular time provides us? 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4, we find information about the time in which we live, and together with that, there is directions for ministry that will guide us and will guard our service in times like this. Chapter 3 begins this way. It's a prophecy, and it says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Well, to understand the times and respond biblically to them, there are a number of necessary considerations for us. Let's bow in prayer for just a moment. Let's ask God to reveal those and make them real to us today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the instruction of Paul to his young minister Timothy. And Lord, I pray that as we understand what Paul was instructing him, that we would have a better understanding of how you want us to be busy conducting ministry in the day in which we live, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. I think one of the first and necessary considerations for us is to contemplate God's timeline. We're all on a journey. 
We're on a journey through time, and it began in paradise past, and it's going to end in paradise future. So the question I ask, is there any clues that God gave us in those first days, as it were, that will help define for us how to function in these last days? And the answer, I believe, is very much yes. God has given us a guide map. God has given us signposts along the way to say this is how ministry ought to be conducted and this is how you need to address the times in which you live. God has a plan for the ages. Things are not just happening, happen chance. Things are not just happening, and then God says, oh, that's happened. Let me see what I can do about that. God doesn't respond that way. There's this word that describes God's knowledge. It's called omniscience. God knows everything. God knows it before it happens. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what could happen. He knows all the options. And God has a plan for the ages, and he has revealed his grand scheme, a divine timeline. And I'm going to move through this fairly quickly, but here is the plan. Presently, we live in the church age. As you read through the Bible and you say, well, where do we fit? This is the church age. God is gathering together his church. At the end of that age, he's going to return for his church, and we don't know when that is, but... Judging from the times, that time is not very far away. We need to be prepared. We need to be ready. At some future date, God is going to return. Christ is going to return, and he's going to take his church to be with him. After that, he is going to establish his earthly kingdom. And we read about that. There's a thousand years reign before we enter into the eternal state And so he's going to establish an earthly kingdom. I believe that that is literal. I believe that the Bible specifically speaks of that time. It is not figurative language. What also is not figurative is that God is going to judge the wicked. And so we need to be prepared so that we are not in that judgment of the wicked, but that we're in the judgment of the righteous where merely our works are evaluated as to whether they are for time or for eternity is what you are doing today of value for eternity, that's the only thing that's going to be of any value after this age. And what we do know is that his redeemed ones will live with him forever. And that is eternity, never ending. And the scripture describes that as a time of extreme joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And we're told that there's no more sorrow, there's no more weeping, there's no more tears, there's no more death or sickness or all the things that go with it. And so we look forward to that time, amen? Amen. However, the journey along God's timeline includes some difficulties because there's the arch enemy, his name is Satan, and Satan also has a kingdom, and it opposes God at every point. And that makes it difficult for us, but mind you, it doesn't make it difficult for God. And God and his kingdom will prevail. So God has a timeline. In that timeline, he has a plan for the ages. And something else that we need to know is that God's plan is on schedule. We talked about that in Second Peter and, and those false teachers who said, well, look, nothing has changed. It's all going on just as it always has. Uniformitarianism, remember that $20 word? 
everything has stayed the same, the seasons change and they go on just as they always have. So how can we think that something catastrophic is going to happen? Because it's according to God's timeline and God's plan is on schedule. He has a plan and a purpose for all creation. His kingdom, his church, his creation, everything is on schedule. And the child of God can say with confidence, my father planned it all. And it's on schedule. It's interesting to note that when Jesus was talking and instructing his disciples about his timeline, he looked back to history to give them context. And he outlined the conditions for the last days. And in defining that, he said, he referred to the condition that existed in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot. And he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be. That was in Matthew chapter 24. And in Luke 17, he says, as it was in the days of Lot, so it shall be. And the Son of Man comes. Well, that's journeying back to the future, isn't it? <laughs> you go straight ahead lies yesterday. Terrible times are nothing new. Apostasy is not new. People living life as if there were no tomorrow is nothing new. People living life as if there's no end is nothing new. In the day of Noah, people were living and giving in marriage and carrying on business and just living life without any acknowledgement of God. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be. What's our day like? Are people carrying on as if there's no God? Oh, many people acknowledge God. Sure, they are. I believe in God. I mean, what percent of America say that? It's a huge percent. 80, 90% of Americans say they believe God. Of course, the God that they believe in is not necessarily the God of the Bible. They have created their own God that they want to believe in. But many of those same people that say they believe in God don't ever show up to worship Him. Many of those same people never spend a moment in His Word to find out who He is and how He wants to relate to us. Many of those people would never consider the Word of God as legitimate practice and description of how life ought to be lived today. No, that's old-fashioned. See, conflict didn't begin in our day. Conflict is an age-old problem. But it will end, and it will end according to God's predetermined timeline on His terms. Ephesians 1.11 reminds us that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Well... When we contemplate God's timeline, we know that He has a plan for the ages. We know that that plan is on schedule. And we need to know God's plan in order to give us perspective for how we view today. When we look at God's timeline and we understand His timeline, that gives us an understanding of what God is doing today on our journey. We as believers, as those who understand and follow the Word of God have an advantage when it comes to comprehending this contemporary scene because we can see from the perspective of heaven. Let me expand that just a little bit. You remember the story of 
time versus eternity where we look through the fence, look through the knot hole in the fence, and we see the parade going by just one piece at a time. That's how we view life. And yet God is, as it were, up in the Goodyear blimp looking down, and he sees the beginning, and he sees the end, and everything in between all at once. So when we gain an eternal perspective of our time, it gives us a very different vantage point, doesn't it? And when we understand the Word of God and what it has to say about time, we will understand our day and our society very different than those around us who are living it out. The unsaved do not have that vantage point. They only have the vantage point of humanity. Their understanding, Scripture describes, is, is darkened to spiritual Truth. They are incapable of understanding and perceiving the divine overview of what is taking place in God's plan. Thomas Carlyle made a very, I, I think, appropriate and descriptive comment. He said, he who has no vision of eternity will never grasp the meaning of time. He who has no vision of eternity will never grasp the meaning of time. God's people have a vision of eternity because we can comprehend God's timeline as it's revealed to us in His Word. Now, to understand the times, we need to contemplate God's timeline, but we also need to calculate our time frame. Where are we located in the big picture, in the grand scheme of things? Well, I want to suggest to you what 2 Timothy 3 describes to us is that we are living in the last days. So I want to analyze the last days, this time frame that we live in as described in verses 1 to 5 of 2 Timothy 3. And the writer here is going to list uh, characteristics, and these are characteristics of the majority. These are general characteristics that define the end times occupants of planet Earth. Are you ready? Verse 1, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Well, I looked through that list and I went, wow, that's my neighbors. Maybe you say, some of those people live in my house. I know those people. Second Timothy was written yesterday, wasn't it? I mean, all you have to do is look at your uh, latest headline and, and, and you see an exact description of what we just read. It's current. And yet Paul predicted this condition 2,000 years ago. Now, I want to divide that list. I think it could be divided into at least three categories. Let me give them for you. The, number, the first one is moral degeneracy. Now, Understand that moral degeneracy is not unique to our time. There have always been moral degenerates. That's a reality of humanity. However, I think the particular conduct that is described in these verses is unique in this way. Moral degeneracy has accelerated and 
escalated to the point where it is now society's defining characteristic. It used to be that somebody that was immoral was pointed out as such, was shunned as such. There may or may not have been some inappropriate ways that we handled that, but there was an acknowledgement that something immoral had taken place. Today, those same people practice that immorality right in the confines of the church, and we look the other way. I think it is a defining characteristic of our culture and our society. Our, our society often reminds us that we are a liberated, educated, sophisticated society, unparalleled in history. We're told that moral deviations are an upward mobility. The traditional values have no place in common culture, modern culture. The changing morals and mores of our time are, well, actually wholesome and enlightening and, and progressive. We have books out. You know, this, this philosophy used to come out through higher education and the college realm. That's moved down into the high schools and down into the grade schools. We now teach our children that Heather has two mommies, and that's the norm. The BBC just a couple of weeks ago reported about a Christian couple who is being denied further opportunities to foster children. The article says the justices stated that traditional Christian sexual ethics is harmful to the interests of children. That's the day we live in. In response to that, liberal gay activist Ben Summerskill stated, thankfully, Mr. and Mrs. John's outdated views aren't just out of step with the majority of the people in modern Britain, but out of many Christians too. I don't know which Christians he's referring to, certainly not the ones described in the Scriptures. You see, contrary to humanistic views, the moral world is not destined to evolve into something better but it's going to devolve into something worse. And Paul's prophetic announcement that these evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's not upward mobility. That's downward mobility. Our time frame is characterized by moral degeneracy, and it's also characterized by spiritual bankruptcy. You just have to watch the news for just a few moments, and you know that Washington, D.C. is all a buzz. In fact, the entire nation is a buzz on financial bankruptcies taking place left and right all over the place. Businesses closing, states trying to figure out where their next dollar is going to come from, and they're trying to extract it from you and me because they're going bankrupt. They're saying, can a state be bankrupt? Well, let me tell you something. The scenario that painted by this list of Paul of the end time characteristic reveals that the problem, the greater problem, a greater problem than financial bankruptcy is spiritual bankruptcy. And I might suggest that if we would deal with the moral degeneracy and the spiritual bankruptcy, we would deal with a lot of the financial circumstances that face our nation. See, the text describes it this way, verse 2, unholy. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, verse 4. Having a form of godliness but denying its power, verse 5. And faithless, verse 8. And then he goes on to describe the pseudo-spiritual ones in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, as those that will not endure sound doctrine. They will turn their ears away from truth. They'll be turned around by, aside by fables. Fables. 
I think we're very aware of the reality of that prediction here in America and in Europe, but what we presently have is ideological and religious pluralism. And that simply means that we accept all thoughts. It's okay. Everything is acceptable. And the popular message is that we all have this innate unlimited potential. Faith is the exercise of the power of the mind. And therefore, mind power is faith. Uh, I reject that. I hope you do too. As you read the Word of God. Those who think their persuasive mental powers directed at God can move Him to do whatever they desire are not talking about the God that I know from Scripture. We're told that if we learn to unleash our mind power, such things as a better self-image, success, and prosperity will all result. And the reason that we're not rich and successful and beautiful is because we haven't learned to loose the power within us. That's where prosperity theology comes from and the whole self-image psychology. And, you know, the body may look good on the outside, but I'm sorry, the patient is dead. You take the word of the, the sword of the word of God and do an autopsy, and you'll find it is dead because of spiritual bankruptcy. Well, there's one other condition I think that's described in this passage, and that is scholarly depravity. That almost sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Scholarly depravity? Let me assure you, that's an accurate description. Paul said, learning without discerning. Always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Verse 8, these men oppose the truth, men of depraved minds. The battle against truth is not new, but it is a battle against God. Psalms 31.5 says, God is the Lord God of truth. And that conflict has raged since the beginning of time, but it has intensified in these last days. And Paul teaches that this rebellion against truth comes from a depraved mind. You may wonder, well, Paul, is he maybe not overstating this prophecy of this age of intellectual brilliance? I think the paradox is here. It's already settled into American education. Princeton University philosopher Diogenes Allen says a massive intellectual revolution is taking place that is perhaps as great as that which marked off the modern world from the Middle Ages. There has been more learning, more growth in knowledge taking place in the last 30 to 40 years than since the 1600s. Accumulated knowledge is growing rapidly, but it's not accumulated knowledge that is God-directed. And if it's not God-directed, it's based on pride. And we're told by these intellectuals that there's no absolutes. There's no absolute truth or true truth, as they term it. Truth is whatever one chooses to believe. There are no moral standards. Nothing is verifiably right or wrong. If it's your custom, if it's your tradition, or if it's your choice, that's viable. The only philosophies that are wrong are those philosophies that hold to antiquated ideas that there are absolute truths. The only real sinners are those that actually believe that there is such a thing as sin. 
Charles Colson said this radical relativism took root on college campuses as postmodernism has now filtered down to the lower grade levels where many students are taught to construct their own truth and values. Teachers are trained not to offer any direction lest they hamper a child's autonomy. Well, I think it's time that we awake to the reality of what has taken place, that we are going through a major total philosophical transition and because of that, we have to declare the truth as never before. We, it's not time to cave into the enemies and throw up our hands and say, well, I guess we've lost. Because this is not the first time that the church has faced this circumstance. You go back to the Roman Empire, particularly during its major decline and then its fall, and we find that it was an age of philosophical relativism, religious pluralism, uh, sexual perversion, brutal violence, and opposition to truth, and that's just what... Paul described in these two chapters. And yet this is the setting where the early church successfully evangelized despite conflict and despite martyrdom. It was at this time and in this context that the Apostle Paul alerted the believers in the Roman Empire to the opportunities that were there at that time because of the times in which they lived. He said, knowing the time that now it is high time, I'm reading from Romans 13, by the way, knowing the time that now it is high time to awaken out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, let us put on the armor of light, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Don't forget that wicked conditions provide wonderful opportunities. They provide opportunities for us to witness the transforming power of Jesus Christ. This is our opportunity to be salt and light in a dark world. Salt impedes decay. Light illuminates the darkness. And when the world is at its worst, the church should be at its best. What an opportunity. Understand the times. We need an understanding of God's timeline. We need to know where we are at in God's timeline. This final consideration is that we concentrate on time management because time and tide wait for no man. Time flows. We don't control it. The older we get, the faster it goes, and the less control we realize we really have over time. We can use it or we can misuse it. We can abuse it. The wise person will take time and he'll use it for the glory of God and for the good of mankind. Remember the men of Issachar? We're told in 1 Chronicles 12, 32, that the men of Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel should do. I like that part of the phrase. They knew what Israel should do in light of the times that they perceived they were in. They understood the times. They had an eternal perspective. And in light of their eternal perspective, knowing God, knowing His Word, they evaluated the times and said, this is how we should conduct ourselves. How effective we are on our journey through time will largely be determined by what we do with the time that we have. 
Paul told the church at Ephesus, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And in writing 2 Timothy 3, it's interesting that Paul really doesn't dwell on the last day symptoms. He shifts his focus to the last day's ministry. The symptoms are in verses 1 to 9, and then he begins a prescription for ministry, beginning in verse 14 to 17, and he continues on to that in chapter 4. And what he prescribes requires good stewardship of time. And when we do that, it maximizes our effectiveness for Jesus Christ in the day in which we live. So how are we as servants of God to manage our time in terrible times? I want to suggest a number of things to you this morning. We need to continue to affirm and communicate truth. Verse 14 of 2 Timothy 3, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. While others may deny the truth, the truth even exists, we must and we do affirm that the Holy Scriptures are true. God's Word provides us everything that we need for faith and to conduct ourselves in a godly fashion in this age. And since God revealed truth, the nature of that is sufficient for us. Because it comes from Him, we need to aggressively proclaim it. This is not the time to back off. He told Timothy in verse 2, chapter 4, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Teach the Word. Think through your life and your day and your week. Where do you have opportunities to teach the Word? It may not be a formal setting. Likely it's not. Probably preferable that it's not. But take those moments and make them teachable moments to declare the Word. You know, there was a story about two salesmen. They were shoe salesmen, and they went to Africa to sell shoes. The first guy sent back a message, and he said, don't send any more shoes. Nobody wears shoes here. The other salesman, he sent back a message and he says, send as many shoes as you can. Nobody's wearing them. Everybody needs them. How do you approach the Word of God in our community, in our society? Stop communicating the message. Nobody's listening. Or do you say, everybody needs it. Keep communicating it. Our message is needed. It's vital. There is truth. There are absolutes. There are moral standards. And so we shouldn't just roll over and play dead as if a backlash of society against those who turn the light on their evil is such a bad thing. If they don't know it's evil, they won't have the opportunity to respond in faith to the one who can cure them of the evil. If they don't know that they are a patient, they won't get the medicine that they need. So continue to affirm and communicate truth. 
and then conduct ministry with credibility and appropriateness. Verse 5 of chapter 4, but you be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Well, how do we do ministry? Conducting ministry with credibility and appropriateness may require that we change our operating procedures. Does that scare some of you? Let me develop this a little bit. Conducting ministry with credibility and appropriateness means that we need to be mission-based rather than tradition-based. I know we know that, and I know we would all agree to that, but in practice, what does that mean? Well, you're looking at one of those practices that we have tried to utilize to be current with the culture but still biblical in our approach. We use PowerPoint. (laughs) I remember the first time I saw PowerPoint in a church. I was in college. It wasn't PowerPoint, it was slides. They didn't have PowerPoint back then. (laughs) I didn't say that. (laughs) They were using slides, and I thought, how heretical is that? That's Hollywood at its best, infiltrating the church. Folks, we live in a visual society. We need to acknowledge it and use it appropriately. Mission-based. Some of you are aware that our church actually has a mission statement. But if I asked you to quote it, probably most of you couldn't. A mission statement is a key ministry objectives of the church. It's designed to unite us in ministry for the glory of God. We should not be doing things just because they've been done that way. Mission, not tradition, should drive the church. Appreciate a few of you there. Because of this point, in a week or so, you're going to receive a a mailing. It's coming from me. It's uh, an evaluation of our church, specifically an evaluation of our mission and direction. We want to hear from you in regards to ministry objectives and how to best address them in the day in which we live. Our deacons have already gone through this. And we are looking forward to hearing from you and seeing your responses to how you perceive what we do on this corner of Tumwater, how we affect our community and how we affect the world. And so be watching for that in the next week or so in your mailbox. And I hope you'll take a few moments. Next, ministry, we need ministries that promote participation, not observation. As I mentioned, we're an electronically focused generation, and this generation learns differently than some of us print-oriented parents. And so we need to provide learning experiences that are consistent and contemporary with the culture in we live. We need ministries that focus not exclusively on the individual, but inclusively on the whole family unit. Barna, the researcher, says the future of the church in America depends largely upon the spiritual commitment of families. For the sake of the future of the church, we have to integrate families into the mix of goals and the activities of the church. And then we need to build on relationships, not just programs. We don't have a whole lot of programs. And I think at the time and space and the the makeup of our church, that is appropriate But we need to not let the program drive us, but utilize the program to enhance the relationships that we make through them. We need ministries that are designed to minister, not to entertain. We must never call entertainment ministry. 
Our ministries ought to be authentic. They ought to be credible. They ought to be spiritually enriching. Worship service should glorify God. They should not magnify man. We ought to have ministries with a dual focus. That means evangelism and edification. That's discipleship. If we're going to be biblical, of course, we need to do all of the Great Commission, and that involves evangelizing as well as stabilizing with equal zeal. When Charles Swindoll went to Dallas Seminary as president, he said, to meet tomorrow's needs, I must be willing to leave today's comfortable familiarities without disturbing yesterday's essential foundations. I think that's a good model to follow. As we look at our time management as individuals, as God's people in the church, we need to affirm truth. We need to be conducting ministry with credibility and appropriateness. And we need to be looking to conclude our journey and ministry well. That means we are actively involved until God takes us home. Paul said in verse 6 of chapter 4, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. So we need to resolve to finish the journey well, not to become critical. I don't want to be one of those old men that walks around critical of everybody and everything I see, negative, cursing the darkness, always talking about the so-called good old days. I've said it here before and I say it again, the best days for God's people are ahead of us. Our goal of glorifying the Lord and reaching souls must never change. Yeah. Whatever adjustments are necessary to glorify God in the ministry, to reach more souls, and to do that effectively, those are the things that we need to do as a church. And I believe that if we understand the times in which we live, that we will make those adjustments because that's what's going to make us relevant and vital in the age that we are in. Would you bow with me? Father, we do not in any way deny the times in which we live and how rapidly things seem to be degenerating morally and spiritually. And so I pray that we will consider how we can be relevant in this day. Father, make us people that are salt and light. Make us a church that has a vibrant influence in our community. Lord, may we hear your voice and may we respond faithfully, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.